You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at houseofcardsradio.com. You know what cheers me up? What? Rolled up aces over kings. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. The House of Cards. Today, the game is different. With author and professional poker player Ashley Adams. Okay, you have some skill. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. We have a great guest, uh, somebody who shows that you can be a truly influential poker professional and also a very engaging, very nice man. We're going to be talking with Maury Escondani. Maury is, well, he wears a couple of hats. He's a professional poker level, a poker player at the highest level, enters major tournaments, cashes in major tournaments, wins major tournaments, and he is also maybe the most significant guiding hand behind the television, poker television productions, Poker After Dark, High Stakes Poker, and the NBC National Heads Up Champion. That's Maury Escondani. We're going to be talking to him. I got some good news for a change in the poker world. You know, we've talked to a lot of people, and the sky seems to be falling. We can't play poker on the Internet anymore, even if you were... Um, a winning player, especially if you were a winning player, it's dried up. It's impossible. There are a few small sites, but the big ones are gone. And I talked to Al D'Amato before, and we talked to Lesniak, and we've talked to all these people, and the sky is falling, Black Friday, terrible stuff. But there's a ray of hope, and uh, the ray of hope is Jan Jones, who is the Senior Vice President, Communications and Government Relations at Caesars, one of the largest corporations in the world. She is going to be on this show, and boy, I'll tell you, knowing that she is behind the efforts that we have to overturn the UIGEA to allow Internet poker is uh, very encouraging. So stay tuned, and uh, I think you'll enjoy listening to Jan talk about what's going on in the world of Internet poker. We'll be right back. Hey, you serious about poker? Then winning 7-card stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-card stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, what cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing, you'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-card stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at HouseOfCardsRadio.com. You're listening to the House of Cards. I'm raising the ante. Anybody wants in, get in. Anybody wants out, get out. All right, I'll play. Join us online at houseofcardsradio.com. Are we going to play poker? So, the poker game has begun.
Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. And uh, as promised, we're here with a fascinating guest, uh, somebody who can tell us not just about the world of playing poker, but also the world of producing top-flight poker entertainment. We're here with Maury Escondani. Maury, are you there? I sure am. Thanks for having me over, guys. Uh, we're, we're happy to have you. Um, I'd like if you could start by just telling our listeners who may not be completely familiar with your story and what you do, how you got started in the poker world in general, and how that took you to what you do now. <laughs> well, uh, I always said life started playing games with me, so I became a gamesman. <laughs> um, uh, actually, my poker life started uh, while I was in college, the last year of college. Uh, the country that I immigrated from, uh, which was uh, Iran, uh, it was in turmoil and revolution, and uh, we had a big business that was all lost between the revolution and the war that happened. So um, I was a foreign student here and found myself uh, essentially alone and with no support, no help. Came from a pretty wealthy family, and uh, that was all gone. So um, at the time, uh, if you don't know the laws, I'm sure you do, uh, foreign students uh, had to get a work permit or visas to work, but they didn't have to get visas or work permit to play poker. Right, that's right. And uh, I I used to play just for nickel and dimes with friends, and everybody always uh, told me that I had a niche for it. I mean, the guys that I played with, and some of them were good players, uh, at, you know, for the school level that we were playing. And uh, call it desperation, fate, whatever you want to call it. And I started playing uh, small limit poker. And next thing I know, I was actually having a steady income from it. Where, where did you start playing your small Vancouver, limit poker? Vancouver, Washington. We were playing um, uh, the highest that I graduated to was the highest limits around. It was a $5 limit, Texas Hold'em. <laughs> <laughs> and this and, was back in what year? We're talking the 80s? Uh, a little before, I think, right around 78, huh. 79. So um, I actually uh, was married then, 79, got married, and I could legally work, and I got a job with a financial institution, uh, which I don't know if you remember, that was a time the interest rates were opposite of what is now. <laughs> oh, I remember. Like 25, 26% or something crazy. So I was paid one week, one one month, and uh, did not. Were not they were not able to pay me. They kept promising if I could just keep working, the paychecks will come. In the meantime, the the office was within walking distance of downtown Vancouver, which at that time had four or five card clubs. So I just quit. Uh, once the, once the five o'clock was there, I go to the card rooms and play two or three hours, and then go home. And make two three thousand dollars a month playing five dollar limit hold'em. And my <laughs> wife then said, "Well, you crazy? Why don't you just quit that job and stick to this job? This sounds like uh, has more uh, promise." And um, that's how my career started as a professional poker player, and I played it for twenty five years. Now, did you were you a grinder? I mean, did you have a regular room? Were you around? Did you go to lots of different places? What did you do? I was married early. And uh, having kids and responsibility doesn't really allow you to uh, uh, let your bankroll uh, 
deviates and jump into games uh, that you have only 30 or 40 times the big blind, which a lot of young kids nowadays do. Uh, so I did stay within my limits. And, yes, you can call me a grinder. And if I was playing higher, I was usually giving up pieces to friends. Uh, when I moved to Las Vegas, it didn't take me long to uh, make friends with people that uh, were looking for somebody like me that was willing to put in uh, 70, 80 hours of playing every week and take a piece of them. <laughs> and, you know, if, if the games around World Series of Poker then were, you know, they were really good cash games. And do you, you know, miss that? It, sorry, do you miss that at all? You know, just like anything, uh, when you do something for, I, I'd say I averaged two thousand hours a year for twenty-five years. So wow. it, you do get burned out. So um, when the world of television somehow was dealt my way, I grabbed it not as much as. Uh, you know, being in love with it, but just getting away from playing for a while. And then uh, the more I um, got involved with it, uh, it was like, uh, okay, you're not leaving this world now. You are a producer. And I was doing this show and that show, and um, here here I am. How, so, how did you get to be a producer? And then tell us what a producer actually does. Well... How I got to be a producer was by sheer luck uh, running into uh, a very good friend and uh, an absolute uh, uh, genius in my book, uh, probably the smartest man I've ever met. Henry Ornstein was uh, a friend that used to come to Vegas and play seven card stud with us. Uh, he enjoyed the level of competition. Uh, although he wasn't a stud player then, he is now a great stud player. He ended up winning the World Series of Poker uh, Stud Championship uh, several years later. Henry always had the opinion that when he watched poker on television, at that time it was only maybe a couple hours of World Series of Poker, nothing serious. It was very boring because you couldn't see people's whole cards. And to a lot of pros, that was funny. Well, of course, you're supposed to guess it. You're not supposed to see it. But, you know, when you're so close to an industry, it always takes somebody from outside come in and steer you the right way. Right. And that was Henry. We were lucky, and the poker world was lucky for Henry to come and uh, develop a love for the game and have the vision that he had that if you don't have whole cams, you don't have a show for television. Now, was he the actual scientist who miniaturized the camera, came up with it, uh, designed it, or did he just have the smarts to find the guys who did it? Right. The, the, the small cameras were off the shelf. I mean, people, you know, Sony made them and Toshiba's made them now. There are a lot of people then that made small cameras. No, Henry came up with the concept that if you show players' whole cards through these uh, small cameras under the table, which later became uh, a more of a better design, when in the rail, when the television people got a hold of the concept, they saw that from under the table you're shooting too much light. Right. You know, that's sitting up above. So they put it in the rail, and it's developed to what it is now. Um, 
No, the concept is what Henry came up with. And uh, then, of course, his concept went on by saying, show the cards, put the graphics up, show the pot, tell the story of the game. Don't let just people guess at it because 99.99% of the people will not be able to guess at it. But if they see the whole cards, they get dragged into it. And, of course, at that time, there wasn't a single pro professional player that would agree with him. And uh, thank God we have Henry that's stubborn his own way. <laughs> well, it reminds <laughs> yeah. me of it, re- it reminds me of the game shows that I watched as a boy, like Password, where there would be a word that one person was trying to get the other one to guess. And the host, who I think was back then Alan Ludden, who was kind of the, the host of all those games in my head. Uh, Hugh Downs was another guy that was a host back then. But uh-huh. Alan Ludden uh, would announce quietly uh, <laughs> what the word was to the audience so that we all knew what they were trying to guess and that made all the difference in the world if you didn't know what they were trying to guess it the game wasn't fun but if you knew they were all trying to get somebody to say a particular word then it became fun because the audience was in on what the person was trying to do and the same Very thing good. is true with the with the the cameras it changed it from a game i mean it changed it from a tv show that only poker enthusiasts would really care about to a show that non-poker players loved, which is magical. Exactly right. So what what do you do as a producer? Well, um, started out as I wasn't as much as a television producer as uh, I was more of helping the television producers to produce poker. So I was what you call poker producer. And the fact that I had played for so many years and known so many of the high uh, limit poker players then, uh, we were very good friends. We're like everyday uh, friend that played and, you know, maybe we go to each other's home for dinners and parties and it was easy for me to reach out to them and say, hey, this is a concept that we have, and uh, we need your help. Come out and play, and, and it's going to work. You know, they somewhat respected coming from me that it's going to work than just some, somebody that they didn't know outside of the uh, outside world telling them that, yeah, it's gonna be, this is going to be good for poker. Of course, there were arguments, you know, uh, how is that going to work? How is this going to be any good? But... Um, you know, went back and forth, and I was able to bring them to the table. So to start out with, I think that was my big role was organizing the games, get the guys to come, and then go sit in the edit house behind an editor and tell them that, no, 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 you can't move there yet. The guy hasn't acted yet. <laughs> or, or you know, you can't just, uh, you know, the button is this. And I actually remember taking some of the editors to local poker rooms in California and putting a whole bunch of chips in front of them, a very small game, and uh, there was only one instruction that everybody at the table they were sitting loved to hear. I told them, play every hand until you go broke. <laughs> the, the, the reason the reason for that was and sometimes you know some of them you know how poker is sometimes you can be lucky it it took them four or five hours to go broke and they you know it was a game that and some of them went broke actually faster the purpose was for them to see the rotation 
how the game works. And if they were acting out of turn, there was always somebody at the table say, hey, it's not your turn yet. And see the flop and the turn, the small blind, big blind. When we left and came back to the studio, at least I didn't have to explain to them what a small blind and big blind and right. button was and who acts after C3 acts. You know, right. It doesn't go to C2, it goes to C4. <laughs> you know. For those of you just tuning in, we are talking, uh, having a great time talking to Maury Eskandani, who is the and has been the producer for a number of very well-known poker shows, including Poker After Dark, High Stakes Poker, and the NBC National Heads Up Championship. Maury, are you working on any of those now? Um, we are just about finished with uh, the final uh, voicing of Poker After Dark shows, but as you know, they get spread out. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, so not all of them are aired at the same time, so we spread it out over the year at NBC. Well, those of us who watch these shows, and I think a lot of our listeners do, but not all of our listeners, are familiar with some of the more famous uh, incidents that have happened on camera. Can you tell us any stories that, of things that you have participated in or watched that you found particularly amusing or interesting or funny, maybe that were actually aired, maybe that weren't aired, that we may not know about? Um, well, actually, it was a, there were a few things that happened. Uh, I wasn't sure. One, one happened with Phil Helmuth, uh, the very first um, episode of... Uh, Poker After Dark, where he was frustrated because everybody was needling him and, and teasing him. Or yes, yes. And he kept calling me. And again, you know, I wasn't from the poker world. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't from the television world. And uh, being from the poker world, I was trying to learn as much as I could. And remember, you know, sitting in the other houses, listening to the TV producers 90 hours a week. But... Uh, uh, still on the stage, I wasn't sure when somebody's calling me. You don't cross the camera line. I mean, you're. Oh, he was calling you during the show. He was calling me, Maury, Maury. I and, and I really was. I didn't know if he was serious. He's putting an act because Phil and I are friends, and uh, I know exactly what was happening. And then I finally decided, you know, I, I'm going to have to get up there because he stopped. He stopped the play, and he's just demanding that I get up there. And the uh, worst thing is they just won't show it. I mean, obviously, we have the option not air it, <laughs> which, you know, was obviously <laughs> at the moment I wasn't so sure if that was an option. It's not live television. You know, it's <laughs> it's being filmed and edited. So I got up there and, uh, you know, resolved it, whatever it was, and everybody was laughing and giggling. Actually, part of it made the show. And to What was day, he so upset people, about? Why was he calling you over? He... Uh, he was he was put into a big decision, if I recall correctly. I think he had ace ten, and Annie Duke had two kings. So uh, he was trying to make a justification of laying his hand down, but playing it safe, where he could have been, he could be being bluffed to, or you know, like he was kind of playing a little bit. But but his main um, objection and his main complaint was the fact that the players weren't giving him the courtesy to think. And they were still needling him while he was thinking. And, <laughs> and you know, Was it part so, of his uh, act? Did you conclude that it was part of his act or that he really was upset? You know, I've seen Phil outside of, outside of the poker table more than, than in, <laughs> on poker table. And um, I'm beginning to believe that part of it is an act. But majority of it, it's it's just him competing. He just uh, sometimes he loses it. 
I don't think uh, I think when he's losing it, he really is losing it. <laughs> he's not he's not putting up a show. Now, what about uh, the magician when he he lost some money at the oh, table? Oh, that was one of my yes. What happened? One, Tell our listeners what actually happened. Well, uh, people come to the shows and they have they don't have to like if they're buying is two hundred thousand and they have two hundred fifty thousand with them. Sometimes, or 300000 with them, they have big chips. They have $25,000 chips that they put in their pocket. They, put it on, they don't put it on the table unless you know, they want to add it on. And this was one of the cases that I believe it was at the Golden Nugget, and Antonio had uh, come in, and he had some cash and chips in his uh, duffel bag, and uh, two $25,000 chips that never got to the table, but somehow in his mind he thought he put it on. He put it with his stack. Now, he's been playing for two, three hours, uh, and uh, he's thinking that he started with 250000 but he actually started with $200,000. Uh-huh. Well, I'm not exactly sure what the figures are, but the difference was 50000 whatever it was. Okay. So we come back from a dinner break or something, and he sits there, and he doesn't see his big chips, his two big blue chips that are $25,000 chips. He is so sure that these chips are missing. Either somebody, like, took it or even slipped by, you know. I mean, he was just going totally 100%. And, and I remember what was funny was his 1 million, 10,000 1 million percent that he had it on the table. Well, you know, all casinos have security cameras. Even when we are filming uh, a show in, inside of the ballroom, they're required by the gaming control board to bring in their surveillance and put it on the table so we can see what happened. But right. aside from that, there's 27 other cameras. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're in the filming environment, it's not just one camera. You can see every angle that something moves. So we went out there and we looked from the very beginning, you know, uh, replay of uh, – we only took two cameras that was, you know, showed him the best. And – we kept looking. He never put any $25,000 chips on the table. And we came back, and everybody's quiet, and they're waiting for the decisions. And the tournament director, which is which is which has to be a casino employee, gets to the table and says, well, Antonio, you never put any chips on the table that was blue color or $25,000 chips. And, of course, his duffel bag was still sitting back there. And he goes and grabs it, and, you know, he had the money in an a, uh, envelope. And he, when he takes the envelope, when he brings the envelope up, we can hear the clicking inside the envelope. <laughs> he turned it over. Of course, there were two $25,000 chips in there. <laughs> so ever since there, his one, 10,000, 100,000, 1 million percent. He went from 10,000 percent to 100,000 percent to 1 million percent, and he was wrong. <laughs> Did he did he handle it like a man? Was he humble, or was he still just so incredulous? That oh, he, didn't know what he to was say? he was definitely uh, he definitely handled it like a man. I mean, he was apologizing to the whole world, but I could see that happen. I mean, it was totally in his head that he dumped everything on the table and he was playing with. And um, you know, sometimes you're so convinced uh, it's day and it's actually night, and that was. Uh. <laughs> Maury, I could talk to you for another hour, but I we're going to bring you back on. This has been wonderful. 20 minutes has never gone so quickly. Uh, we've been talking to Maury Escandani, who is uh, the 
producer, the poker producer of Poker After Dark, High Stakes Poker, NBC National Heads Up Championship. We didn't even get into your professional poking playing, poker playing experience, your tournament wins, your monies, and all that. Next time we'll have to do it. I really appreciate you coming on, Maury. Sure. My pleasure. Okay. Take care, listeners. We'll be back after a break. Thank you. You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at HouseOfCardsRadio.com. Great Moments in History In July 1937, Amelia Earhart was informed by her navigator, Fred Noonan, that they were off course over the Pacific Ocean. You're wrong. Who is in here telling me that I'm not in heaven then? Can I hold the f- no. Can I hold the f- No. That is so not cool. In June 2008, House of Cards began podcasting. Go to HouseOfCardsRadio.com and click on the podcast button for all recent show downloads. Hey, this is Dave from House of Cards with your House of Cards gaming report for the week of July 4th, 2011. Republican Congressman Joe Barton from Texas introduced legislation last week that would regulate online poker in this country. The new bill assigns the U.S. Department of Commerce with monitoring the online gaming industry in the United States, while programs created by individual states would be responsible for issuing licenses to applicants that meet a set criteria. Beyond providing critical protections for consumers, the creators of the bill hope that would also lay the groundwork for creating thousands of jobs and generate billions of dollars in revenue to stimulate the economy. Co-sponsors of the bill include Shelley Berkeley, Democrat from Nevada, John Campbell, Republican from California, and Steve Cohen, Democrat from Tennessee. Well, looking for a job? The Plaza Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas is looking to bring in 800 employees for its grand reopening on September 1st. The hotel and casino closed last September in order for it to complete $35 million worth of renovations. The Plaza recently held a job fair in order to fulfill the positions in anticipation for the reopening. The resort will be holding a soft opening on August 24th for the casino. In order to attract more customers in this tough economy and with stiff competition from gaming halls in Pennsylvania, New York, and Delaware, Atlantic City is launching a series of rather strange promotions. Many of the casinos seem to be taking part in the craziness with contests such as a Snooky Lookalike contest, a Pickle Bobbing contest, something called Chick Tac Toe, and a Beer Pong contest in which the winner will receive a prize of $25,000. By the way, as an update on one of the promotions, Robert Tuzzi won the Pickle bobbing contest pulling out an incredible 60 pickles congratulations robert on a job well done have any news or tips regarding casinos gaming or legislation send us an email at newsroom at house of cards radio.com now back to more house of cards you're listening to the house of cards I think we got a show. Oh, yeah, we got a show. We definitely got a show. Oh, yeah, there's a show. Hey, it's all about ratings, baby, and we got them. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. 
We are very fortunate in having one of the major players in the gambling industry today. We are talking with Jan Jones, whose official title is Senior Vice President, Communications and Government Relations at Caesars Entertainment. Jan, are you there? I'm here. Terrific. Well, let me let me just start with uh, one question. Your bio says you are arguably the most influential woman in the gambling industry. Now, why and how is that the case? Oh, well, I'm not sure my bio says that. <laughs> well, the, the, the press sheet that they send out <laughs> describing who you are says it. So uh, are you are you one of the most influential women in the gambling industry? Well, I don't know whether I'm one of the most influential, but I've been around the gambling industry a long time. Give us a 30-second to one-minute uh, bio. What, what are your roots, and how is it that you ended up as the vice president I, of communications, et cetera? I actually grew up in California, went to Stanford University, came to Las Vegas for a year, was elected mayor in 1991, served eight years, ran for governor. Then I've been with Caesars Entertainment for the last 11 years, uh, run not only their communications, government relations, work in their development. Um, so you uh, seen, I, I, seen Las Vegas grow from forty four thousand hotel rooms to one hundred and seventy thousand. So I've wow. been around the industry a long time. Well, I I feel very stupid then because you're the immediate predecessor to Oscar Goodman. I am indeed. I see. Well, I should have known that. Shame on me for not doing my homework. When you lived in California. Uh, did you play or did you have access to and go into any of the poker clubs back then? Or was it a foreign experience for you until you entered the gambling industry? Exactly. They existed. I, I certainly never played, although I'll tell you a great story. The reason I came to Las Vegas is my family was in the grocery business. And our four supermarkets weren't making any money selling groceries, but we had 48 slot machines that made a great deal of money. But my father was a believer you had to make money in your primary business. So he said, I need you to move to Las Vegas and figure out how to make groceries profitable. And I said, I'll go for one year. And I'm still here. <laughs> Do you miss the grocery industry? Oh, the grocery industry was a great industry, particularly in the mid-'80s, because they were still largely all family-owned operations. They're very different today. Yeah. Well, I... I am eager to have our listeners understand first, before we even get into the whole Internet question, just how big Caesars is. And Caesars, I guess, used to be Harris, and then it became Caesars, and now that's the name for all of what used to be the Harris properties and lots of other properties, right? That's indeed. When I first joined what was then Harris, we were largely, we had two big properties in Las Vegas, Harris and the Rio, but we were largely a riverboat company through a series of major acquisitions, Horseshoe, um, Players Club, and, and then Caesars, we have become and evolved into the largest gaming company in the world. Okay. We have over 52 locations in five continents. Okay. Uh, tell us, just for those of, of our listeners that are not really familiar, what are the properties that you now have in Las Vegas, and in what other states do you exist, and what other countries? All right. We in Las Vegas, if you're looking at the Strip, we have Caesars, Harrah's, Imperial Palace, Flamingo, Bally's, um, I think I said Paris, and Rio. In foreign countries, we own London Clubs, which also operates in South Africa and in Egypt. We have a small property in Beirut. We also have a really nice...
nice property, Punta del Esto, in Uruguay. In states, we operate with three tribes in South Carolina, Arizona, and California. And then we have river boats in Indiana, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri. Um, I think those are the river boats. Mississippi. And then we're in New Jersey. Not in Mississippi or Louisiana. We yeah, are you New- are. You're in New Orleans. Louisiana. I've played there. Um, that's a lot of chips. That's exactly. a lot of chips. So just to give us a sense of comparison, where are you compared to other multinational corporations? Are you in Fortune's 500? Are you in the top 100? Where do you rate? I believe we're in the Fortune 200. And, you know, it, it's interesting when people talk about the gambling business, I, they, they forget, and I use this for comparison, the gambling industry in America today, just in America, has more employees than the entire auto manufacturing industry. Wow. You know, this is very big business. How it many employees? employs a lot of people. How many, if you were to add up all of the employees in all of Caesars Holdings, what kind of a number are we talking about? About 80,000. <laughs> that's that's a lot of people. And I, I'd point that's out, by true. the way, I'm... Uh, in my other life, I'm a union representative. A lot of your properties are unionized. Yeah, absolutely. We are very good union partners. And actually, just in with all the flooding in Mississippi, you know, where our properties were closed for weeks, we paid all of our employees all the way through wow. and maintained their benefits. And e- even the tipped employees found an average. So, you know, we're... That's, you're a good employer. I, I bet... We are a good employer. You probably have more unionized employees than just about any other business in the United States aside from government. You may be the largest union employer in the country, one of them anyway. You know, it's interesting, Ashley, you say that. I think that's probably right. Wow. Um, Different unions, Teamsters, Operating Engineers, Unite Here. Right. Uh, Service Employees Union, maybe. I know you have UFCW. Yeah, SEIU. We do have UAW. We just signed a contract with UAW in Atlantic City, and we're going into Ohio. And they've been working with the UAW. In fact, the UAW helped pass that legislation. What casino do you have in Ohio? There are two casinos that will be opening in Ohio uh, in partnership with Rock, which is uh, Dan Gilbert. One's in Cincinnati and one's in Cleveland. Wow. Wow. When are they scheduled to open, Jan? Well, we were, we were very close to breaking ground, but there seems to be a little disagreement or a, maybe I'll just call it discussion that's going on with the new governor. So we're we're holding actually breaking ground until we're very comfortable that the tax environment and what's going to be expected is in our best interest and the state's best interest. Sure, that makes sense. I got to say, I've played at uh, I've played poker at I think twelve, maybe fifteen of your properties in uh, in the United States, and uh, it's it's nice to have all the links together that you can. There's a lot of cross promotion. There's a lot of uh, the ability to use points at different places. The sense that you're earning stuff no matter where you go, very nice. I, I do want to get into though the question of internet and intra state internet poker because that's what our listeners are most concerned about. Uh, where is Caesars on the question of the unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act? On that question first, and then we can talk about uh, intra state uh, internet poker as well. 
We, we absolutely believe that the U.S. government needs to put in oversight and regulations that allows people to play poker um, in their homes or where they want. You know, this is a game that millions of Americans play. They've been playing it for years and years, and the the fact that the Unlawful Internet Gaming Act, because of the questions on bank, has made this uh, difficult for U.S. players. That needs to be addressed and fixed. So you've been lobbying, at least in some regards, on the same side of the issue as the Poker Players Alliance. No question. We have been actually very closely aligned with the position of the Poker Players Alliance. Well, that's very good to hear because the concern that I had was that some of the land-based casinos would find it in their short-term interest to try to discourage online play legislatively, and it sounds like we are aligned on that. How about in you know California, New Jersey, a few other states that are uh, trying to set up intrastate Internet where New Jersey players could play on the Internet in New Jersey and California players could play in California. Where do you stand on that question? You know, it's an interesting question. We really believe we need to keep our focus federally because of two, two issues. One, the interstate activity of poker and that even intrastate, there are questions with the Department of Justice, whether you really can have a closed loop system. And, and if this is addressed, we need it addressed once and for all. There's also a concern, not so much in California or New Jersey, but particularly with smaller states, of liquidity. If it's only an intrastate, liquidity is really important to the value of the experience for poker players. And a lot of the smaller states, you know, I don't think they would have the critical mass to even be able to provide the game. Or would it be cost-effective for the big providers to go in and build a system if you were having to build it in every state? So you're a very skilled and experienced politician. That sounded like a, a very nice way of saying that on the question of intrastate poker, we would part company. Um, but your your position is, let's make, if I can uh, yeah. distill it, would be that you're opposed to it right now because you feel that it's too fraught with potential problems for the player. Is that correct? Um, both for the players and the operator. However, that being said, if we can't get the federal government to act on legislation, we would then per- pursue a state-by-state. Okay. We don't think it's the optimal answer. But it's, it's not that we're opposed. We just want to go for the highest and best answer first. And then if we can't make that a reality, then we'll look at state by state. Okay. So that's, that's actually also encouraging. So is it fair to say that um, – well, I'd be interested in this, Jen. You're a very experienced politician. You understand the, the nature of the beast. Where would you say we are at as far as the possibility of anytime soon overturning or severely changing the UIGEA so we could have legal and easy access to online poker? You know, I think a case could be made federally that by outlawing Internet gambling and exempting online poker, that you actually... Meet the needs of the Unlawful Internet Gaming Act. You put in the enforcements, you put in the regulations, but you allow people who want to play a very American game the ability to do so. Do you think that that argument, which absolutely makes sense to me, is gaining any traction uh, in Washington? 
You know, I believe that it is because it's you want to keep the argument simple. You know, this is about poker. People play poker at their bar mitzvahs and graduations and retirement homes. The the very fact that the federal government is making it illegal for a player to play, they can play with real cards, but they can't play with virtual cards, makes no sense at all. Well, we sure do concur. (laughs) Yes, we do. So have you been lobbying at all? Have you gone down to Washington or seen... The, The last two years... Washington has been my second home. We, we you know, actually thought we had, you know, some momentum at the end of the lame duck. We've regrouped. I think that the gaming industry is largely aligned. I, I think as unfortunate as the indictments were that it did raise the need for regulation, clarification of the rules. We certainly don't want to, you know, criminalize, you know, Average poker players' you know behavior—it's it, it, it's just not the right thing to do. Go- government has a lot of things to worry about. This shouldn't be their focus, except to fix it. Well, you sure would convince me if I were a politician. I hope your efforts are successful in that regard. Does the Caesars have any interest in entering the online gaming market anytime soon as well? We actually are in the online gaming market. Caesars Interactive Entertainment is not only it operates in the U.K., it's looking to go into Italy, uh, France, all in any market that is a legal market. Um, we offer games that are legal in those markets. And, you know, so our business it, it is actually a vibrant business that we're becoming more and more aggressive. We would love the opportunity to come into the U.S. market. And and to your point earlier, we really believe, and, and I think I'm gaining traction in having other gaming companies see this as well, if we do not properly leverage Internet, I think it puts the brick-and-mortar industry at risk in the long term. If you look at companies that did not leverage the Internet, record companies, newspapers, um, bookstores, they're not here anymore. It, for the first time in ever, the, the sales of televisions have gone down this year in the U.S. It, you know, the emerging customer, they meet, they congregate, they um, communicate, they recreate on the Internet. And if you're not meeting them and showing them relevance... They're going to make other entertainment choices, and it's not going to be you. Well, I think that's a very good note to end with, Jan. We're out of time, and I I want to thank you because, and I'm not just saying this, I've had a lot of guests on this show. I can see why you were successful both in business and in politics. You are incredibly eloquent and powerful as a speaker in a subtle way, and knowing that you are lobbying on behalf of the interests of the poker players that listen to the show is the one encouraging thing that we've had on the show for the last few weeks. So I really appreciate what you're doing. Keep up the good work. I appreciate your kind words, and I'll continue to give it my best effort. (laughs) Thank you. That's Jan Jones, who I hope is one of the most influential women in the gambling industry, because if she's influential, then we're going to overturn the UIGEA and be allowed to play poker online sometime soon. Thanks again, Jan. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with our next guest.
Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something, that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guest strategy questions. They could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they are particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of Mailbag, info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at houseofcardsradio.com. Previously on House of Cards, they were very rude, and um, they kicked me out. Really? They kicked me out of (laughs) About a minute and a half later, two very large guys came up behind me as I was seated, and they said, Sir, you'll have to come with us. You've been asked to leave. House of Cards has secretly obtained the audio from this Las Vegas poker room. Here's the poker room manager's instructions to his staff upon seeing Ashley. I see you. I see you. You hit that in the face really f***ing hard. Sorry, man. Ow, ow, ow. House of Cards, spreading love wherever we go. I love that uh, lead-in. Every time I hear it, I've heard it a hundred times. I love it. I hope uh, that wasn't the case on your trip uh, this last time, right? No. You're on your best behavior, right? You know, and the Mandalay Bay experience, we should mention the name. The Mandalay Bay experience. I know we beeped it out before, so we didn't know what the hell it was. You know, if they're going to advertise, um, did not keep me from going back to Las Vegas. It was a unique experience. I've generally been embraced by management. Not always. I mean, you know, but... This was a great trip, though, this recent one. I, um, well, more importantly, you uh, no, went, no, with, no, went with... Okay, you want to make the... Okay. I, I mean, I went to Las Vegas okay. for the World Series of Poker, and uh, I stayed at the Rio. Okay. And uh, my daughter and I entered a tournament, and she finished 17th, wow. and I won. Wow. Tournament. So I'll tell you the full story. Um, See, I was going to lead up to that. You know, I, uh, create I, suspense. Well, I was afraid you might blow the uh, the ending oh okay it's all right but in any event um my daughter turned 21 and we have a history of um me taking her on interesting trips since she was a preteen. we used to go on long driving trips we drove up to labrador we drove to newfoundland we drove to florida we drove to minnesota stuff like that we flew to alaska and uh i decided i I'd ask her if she would like to go to Las Vegas for her 21st birthday. She turned 21 in April. And uh, fortunately, even though she's 21 years old, and I'm probably not the greatest guy in her eyes anymore, but she agreed to go. And I was absolutely tickled to death. So I made the arrangements. Uh, I decided, unlike prior trips, not to go on the cheap. 
so I didn't find a place for eight dollars. No, no, no eight dollar rooms. No, were, uh, no eight dollar. No quarter shrimp night. <laughs> <laughs> right, ninety nine cent Not, shrimp. Cocktail. Oh, was it ninety nine cent? Something like that. But no, no. We, um, <laughs> we actually stayed in the heart of the World Series because I wanted to show her my friends in the poker industry, and that seemed like the best way to do it. And also, I wanted to be able to blog my experiences, which I did. And I, what I do is I put my computer down in the media room. And then I get up early in the morning, and I go down there, and I type something in every morning. But we stayed at the Rio. It was uh, just full disclosure. I got a media rate of only $240 total for three nights, including a Saturday night. So that's it's very good. Very good deal for the Rio. Yeah. And that could have stayed more cheaply, but that was a good rate. So we flew in, and uh, shortly after we flew in, we had lunch with one of the guests we've had on the show, Alan Schoonmaker. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Alan is a just as interesting as he is on the air. <laughs> he is more interesting in person. He talked about the poker world, but then he also talked about his travels through India. My daughter is going to India. Oh, wow. She's going to be studying there first semester of her senior year. She's at Temple University, and she's going to spend her first semester in India. So Alan was fascinating uh, on that topic. We also we had a... Indian buffet for lunch, so it was you know the food, the ambiance were right on. We finished. Your, your daughter's a vegetarian, though. She right? is. She, is it exactly. all vegetable? Good memory, man. I know. I, I remember. It was hey, not. I care. <laughs> <laughs> it was not all vegetable, but they had a lot of vegetarian stuff, so I think she enjoyed it. Uh, we checked into our room. We relaxed. Um, I took a nap. Uh, then we went. When I said we won, I won a tournament, I did not play at the Rio. So it's kind of deceptive for me to say <laughs> I won. It sounds like I won a World Series of Poker. I did not. We went to one of my favorite places. I've talked about it before, yeah. the Poker Palace. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> poker Palace is, uh, to be fair. I have to find a picture of this because. Uh, well, it's uh, this is little. It, is it like, like wooden floorboards and it's kind not of thing? It's like or? the old Wild West thing. It's just. Imagine early seventies era, kind of and kind of fallen on hard times. <laughs> you know, a little dark, it's like rip velour seats. Kind yeah, of thing. right. There you go. <laughs> yeah, okay. There you go. I wouldn't okay, say I'm ripped, the uh, but mental picture here. You know, okay. the poker area. The the seats are moderately comfortable, but a little run down and scuffed and. Uh, kind of has better that days. faint odor of despair in the air, kind of thing. That's a very poetic a sentence. The Faint odor of despair. It sounds like a poem. So we went there. For the there. Poker Palace. There it goes. Poker the Palace. Slogan. It's got the you know the neon lines, the flashing lights uh, outside, but nothing grand. All kind of seedy. A little seedy. It's Vegas. It's Las Old Vegas. Old school Vegas. Well, a, a step below. You know, <laughs> I, I asked Alan the lowest rung of the ladder as far as poker is concerned, and he said, uh, well, it would be a local's place. The place I play at, he said, was uh, Samstown. And this is a couple of steps below Samstown. Uh, so we go in, and they have a 6 p.m. tournament. And on Saturday night, it's all locals. I'm the only, My daughter and I are the only people, I think, further than five miles away from this poker room. There are a number of Mexicans because it's a largely Mexican section of the city. It's in north Las Vegas. A number of older white guys, Anglos, a few... Asians and a couple of Asian women. There were five total women out of 40, including my daughter. We played 
actually, the tournament lasted much longer than it normally does. They told me it's normally over in two, two and a half hours. We played until about 10, 15 at night, so it was a good four hours wow, and 15 boy. minutes. Why uh, did it take so long for this one? Just well, the number of people? I, I don't know. Just, it was just, uh, just the way it went. Not? The structure is not terribly aggressive. Uh, you start with a fair number of chips. I think it's 4000 plus you can get another 1000 maybe for 2 bucks or something. Very low-stake, $20 tournament. So we played, and it was fun. Uh, it was fun because there's my daughter at the next table over there, and she's never played a tournament. I'm watching her, and uh, she had a serious game face. I mean, she was, I'm sure, very nervous. I had given her a couple of pointers, and she's played some poker in the past, but she's never played in a tournament. She doesn't play much at all, so she's nervous. And the way her nervousness came across as far as an image was of a stern... Um, serious, purposeful player. And when she bet, she bet seriously. Uh, with you know, She didn't just kind of look around, what should I do? She was decided. She looked decisive. So she lasted. They consolidated down to three tables. She's still in, doing fine. Wow. They consolidated down to two tables at about 8.15, 8.30. She's still there. So now we're 20 players, and she's among the 20. And she had a pretty good-sized stack of chips, and uh, she and I tangled in one hand. You know, I raised, she called, the flop came, I bet she called, the turn came, I bet a lot, and she folded, and her stack was pretty crippled, and she got knocked out a short time thereafter. But she lasted until 17th. Wow, 17th. At a four-hour tournament. Yep. In her first tournament. Yep, yep. And uh, outlasted all the other women. Um. And then she stood at the sidelines on the rail with a guy that had been knocked out earlier who had a relative that was still playing, and she got to talk to him, and she was very relaxed, and I got to see her kind of conversing with a regular poker player, which was kind of cool. And then what was interesting about it poker-wise was with a lot of these local tournaments, the guys almost always chop when it gets down to a final table. Uh Got down to a final table. Especially after four hours. Right, that's right, that's right. And uh, I had a little more than the median number of chips. And I said, you guys want to chop? And all but two guys wanted to chop. So what happens when that happens is that everybody then wants to gang up on those two guys to knock them out so they can chop. And we're talking pennies. I mean, we were going to chop for 89 bucks each or something like that. And then it got down to six players. And, again, I have like a middle stack. And I say, who wants to chop? And all but one guy wants to chop. And it got down to three of us, and we're roughly equal in stacks. And I said, you guys want to chop for a second and third? It'll be 200-some-odd bucks each. And one guy said, no, I'm playing till the end. So the very next hand, I shoved with a pair of deuces preflop. He called with ace-jack. The other guy called with king-queen. My deuces held up, and I won almost all of each of their chips. So I had 90% of the chips at the table. But in the spirit of fairness, I said, all right, how about now? I'm not going to agree to an even chop, but if you guys give me 250 or 260, you can chop the rest, which I think they got 200 each, and I got 250. And my daughter, yeah, she was happy I won, but what she was more impressed with was that I kept to my bargain and didn't, when I had the huge stack, say, well, now I want to play it out so I can win the $350 first prize by myself, you know, I was...
principled, and she liked that. <laughs> really, that she was proud of me. She well, liked that's me. great. Uh, hey, life lessons in poker. <laughs> I mean, when, when when you noticed when she was playing, did you see her get more confident as the tournament went on, or was she pretty steady all the way through? She had her game face on, and I got to say, I was looking at her, and uh, I was just so proud of her with her seriousness of purpose, and she kept that image. And, you know, she's very beautiful young woman she had just had a almost a complete shaving of her head she had like a number two clipper okay. she got, which is either you look like a, a cancer survivor or a high fashion model wear their hair like that which is the way i looked at her and she's wearing a little eye makeup and she looked like one of those people you see in the world poker tour that's you know a high fashion woman playing poker and i think some of the guys there were intimidated by that i was impressed by it and i just it was great so that was the main event for us, but we also managed well, in the next minute or so that we have. Uh, I took her to meet with Jan Fisher and Linda Johnson, who've been on this show, both professional uh-huh. poker players, Linda Johnson, the first lady of poker. We had a wonderful lunch. Linda brought an entourage of about six or seven other serious poker <laughs> players. We had a great poker discussion we had at a sushi place. All you can eat sushi. I had like 50 pieces of sushi. It was sick. And More so- seafood. You don't learn from last year. Right? <laughs> You're in the middle of the desert. You're eating seafood. Well, I figure they fly it in. Uh, and then we went to the Bellagio, had dinner there, and went to see Cirque du Soleil, the O. Oh, how was show. that? Oh, yeah, it was great. Really? We had front row seats. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't intentionally get them. Uh, and then we saw Penn and Teller at the Rio. I took her to a couple of other restaurants. Uh, we toured and went to Hoover Dam, which was a little disappointing because the elevators didn't work and you couldn't actually get into the dam. But we had, for me, it was the greatest trip. I don't know if she... It sounds like the perfect Vegas experience. Yes, absolutely. Four days, three nights, and uh, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. It was more valuable to me than winning. I wouldn't wouldn't say the main event. That would be more valuable. But winning a World Series of Poker bracelet would not have been as satisfying as taking my daughter. So that'll do it. On that note, uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, listeners. Good night, good day, and good luck. podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com